Welcome to Decoding Superhuman. This show is a deep dive into obsessions with performance and how to improve the human experience. Twice a week, I explore the latest science, technology, and tactics with experts in various fields of human optimization. I'm your host, Boomer Anderson. Enjoy the journey. Superhumans! It's Boomer Anderson, and we are back with another, actually, let's not call it another. I am so excited to bring this episode to you guys. When I started podcasting, I made a list of 25 people I wanted to interview across various domains of performance. When it comes to productivity, the one person I wanted to interview was the author of a book which simply changed everything for me. I was a junior in college. It was cold. It was Minnesota. I was tackling too much like many juniors in college do. I was members of too many organizations. I was an intern at an investment bank, and I had a full-time credit load. I came across this book, Getting Things Done, The Art of Stress-Free Productivity, and it changed everything for me. And since that point, it has been foundational to my own productivity system. David Allen is widely recognized as the world's leading expert on personal and organizational productivity. His 30-year pioneering research and coaching to corporate managers and CEOs of some of America's most prestigious corporations and institutions has earned him Forbes recognition as one of the top five executive coaches in the U.S. and Business 2.0 magazine's inclusion into their 2006 list of 50 who matter now. Time magazine called Getting Things Done the definitive business self-help book of the decade. Like I said earlier, the book changed everything for me. Simply put, it changed my life. So I was thrilled when David agreed to come on the show. We're going to break this interview out into two parts because it is quite a long interview and David was more than generous with his time. In this first part, which you're listening to right now, we're going to go into a little bit of David's history, his experience in college and how it shaped him the roles mentors played in development of things like GTD. The show notes for this one are going to be at decodingsuperhuman.com slash GTD. I love this episode. I'm going to continue listening to it, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with David Allen. David, welcome to the show. Boomer, thanks for having me. So I have to ask, and I want to start with a little bit more of a personal question, because as a fellow American living in Amsterdam, how did you choose Amsterdam over every other place in the world? Well, my wife and I wanted to get out of the U.S. We were a bit tired of the U.S.-centric thinking, and we wanted to, it was time for, you know, kind of a shift and a change in our life. We don't have kids, and my work was becoming much more virtual anyway. So we were attracted to coming to Europe, and it could have been pretty much anywhere, um, as long as I'm near a good airport. Uh, we'd been to Amsterdam two or three times. You know, as you know, it's an eye candy city, so you know, gorgeous and charming and, and wonderful. And so we we just sort of picked it because it was more of a perfect storm. It was enough of a foreign country to be interesting and adventurous, and yet, as you know, everybody here speaks English, so uh, uh, so it, it's comfortable in that way. We loved the Dutch. We loved the Dutch culture. We loved the openness. You know, the Republic of Amsterdam, sort of like the Republic of San Francisco. We love San Francisco, and I call Amsterdam the San Francisco of Europe. You know, very similar, as you know, in, in style, but even more village-like and informal. You know, than you know, formal in Amsterdam is jeans with no holes in them. You know? <laughs> and so it's great. And so quality of life here is wonderful. And we didn't know how long we were going to stay. Uh, but we've been here now five years. I mean, we just totally fell in love with the city. And of course, uh, Schiphol is one of the best airports to get anywhere in the world from. You know? Makes so, life easy, right? Oh boy, really. And Amsterdam is much more the center of the world than Santa Barbara is, you know, from where we moved. So anyway, yeah, lots of reasons that we, that we love it. If you don't mind, I want to go a little bit into your history because I, I found your background to be absolutely fascinating. Can we talk a little bit about New College in Florida 
and what you studied there. What I, what I want to get a sense of is the experiences that you went through and how it shaped what we're going to get into later as sort of GTD. Mm. New College in Florida, can you talk a little bit about what you studied and sort of how it may have influenced you in particular ways? Well, in retrospect, and this is in a long retrospect, I couldn't have told you this until just a few years ago. Uh, I've always been fascinated by the relationship of the things you can't see with the things you can, that there were invisible factors that affect all of us. As a matter of fact, that if you got a hold of the invisible in terms of how it's affecting everything we do and everything we think and everything we perceive and everything, you know, and all how we act and all that good stuff, that that would be the master productivity key. You know, if you could find this stuff. So I've always been fascinated. My first job was a magician at age five in Palestine, Texas, charging five cents on the sidewalk for magic tricks. <laughs> so, you know, so I was always kind of like, well, what's out there that you can't see. So I've always been fascinated by that in, in retrospect anyway, uh, up through, I, I had the opportunity to do a year long uh, sort of lifestyle exchange uh, program with American Field Service, AFS. And I lived with a Swiss family for a year. And, uh, you know, growing up in East Texas and then Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, that very much broadened my horizons to be at, you know, at the a little bit of a culture change, a little bit of a culture change, <laughs> though I had uh, for other reasons, I didn't, you know, this is a much longer story than you need to hear, but I had a half sister who was married to John Clonan Holmes, who was one of the beat generation writers. So even from age nine and 10, uh, you know, I was pretty aware that there was another world out there that was more open and a good bit more hip, at least from the, from, from my standpoint. So I was always looking to sort of expand out and certainly that opened my eyes a lot. Uh, and David, if you don't of, mind just on the, the beat generation point, because look, I, I've read a little bit of Jack Kerouac stuff and a few other members. Did you get time to spend with, with those guys? And what were some no, of I didn't, did? I didn't really meet them, but my brother-in-law, he, mm-hmm. He and Kerouac coined the word beat together mm-hmm. in Central Park. And they saw a guy walking along and they said, hey, like beat. And that, <laughs> that, that, that became part of it. So I was around um, John and, uh, you know, for, for many years uh, and had the opportunity to engage in, with him. He was a very engaging guy. He was, a, he was a conscientious objector in World War II, if you can imagine. Mm-hmm. His great-great-grandfather was Oliver Wendell Holmes. You know, so this is, he had that whole, uh, a, a very interesting, fascinating background uh, and, you know, very cool guy. Anyway, so that was, that opened my eyes to begin with. And then being in Switzerland uh, for a year, you know, a block from Kunsthaus where I'd go down and stare at Monet water lilies and go down and have a beer at Cafe Odeon, which is where Dadaism started and where Jung, you know, hung out. And, you know, so I, my eyes were pretty much open to the, the, the world of, of uh, you know, more cultural interest. And, and uh, I thought, I, you know, in high school, I thought, well, maybe I'd be a lawyer. I was a good debater. I was a state champion debater in high school. Uh, and, and I loved that. So I thought, you know, law was kind of, well, maybe that's where to go with this. But uh, the, the, the study of culture and, 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 and art and all that stuff sort of turned me on. I got turned on to that. So I picked New College. I was in the second graduating class, New College. I don't know if you know much about it, but it was sort of like the Reed Goddard style, you know, Antioch. Uh, just sort of combined all that together in a crazy little college uh, in Sarasota, Florida, uh, with 60 faculty and uh, only there were 200 students and uh, no grades, independent study, design your own education. Uh, we lived in the dormitory, the only the only building in Florida designed by I.M. Pei. And, and so it was a fascinating place. And so it, they, they had recruited essentially kids from all over the United States who somehow stood out. They didn't know, you know, what kind of kid was going to work the best, function best in that kind of a, a free environment. This is the early 60s. So it was back in those back in those days. Anyway, that's so I picked my brother had gone to Yale and didn't have a very good experience at a big university. So I said, I think I think I'll pick a small one. And they kind of recruited me. So uh, I went there and I started in philosophy because I, I thought that was you know, so interesting. Sort of the what's the bigger game, you know, God, truth and the universe. And 
how do you understand all that? But I found the philosophers basically wound up proving their original hypothesis using their original <laughs> hypothesis. I said, well, that's kind of a, what we call a circle, you know what? And uh, I said, hmm, what was more interesting was why they started with that hypothesis. And a, a, a mentor of mine uh, turned out that he was my academic advisor uh, in, in New College, and he was the head of the history uh, department. He'd been the head of the history department at Purdue, very smart guy. And he turned me on to the whole idea of intellectual history, which is the history of thought, history of culture, history of, uh, of you know, whatever. And uh, he had me read Oswald Spengler's the, the Decline of the West, which is one of the first sort of books that, you know, talked about cultures having their own geist and their own spirit and their own DNA, essentially, that affected the art, the philosophy, the math, the, the architecture, uh, the literature. So you could see a common thread across the Baroque era. You could see a common thread across the Russian culture. You could see a common thread across the Arab culture. And so I, I, that kind of turned me on to, to that. And so I got basically turned on to the idea of, you know, cultural. I don't think we used the word paradigm back then. I think it only got popular later on. But it was the idea that, that, that somehow there's a cultural geist that's affecting how we perceive things and how we perform and how we act and how we, our view of the world. So I was fascinated uh, by that. So then I became an American. And I, then I was also fascinated by uh, the U.S., the, 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 the sort of psyche and DNA of the U.S. So my, uh, we had to write a thesis for our bachelor's degree. So my thesis was on the decade of disenchantment, uh, the U.S. in the 1920s. And uh, that was fascinating because, of course, that was, you know, I graduated in 68. So this is hippie time, right? And mm -hmm. so, uh, the, and all the hippies and all the flower people and all that stuff were railing about the U.S. sucks and they were leaving the country and smoking dope and doing all kinds of things like that, thinking they were so new. And that was so gag me American, you know, that was, they were just fitting right in with the culture of the DNA. And the 1920s is exactly the same thing. You know, they, they railed against the middle class. They went to Paris. They did all kinds of stuff. It was just a much smaller group, but it was still the same idea. And of course, communes started in the, you know, you saw the first communes in New York state back in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. So, so I was fascinated by that. So that was that, then I got into graduate school and, and my focus was American intellectual history, the history of thought of the U S then at a certain point I got, uh, I sort of given the times and given stuff that I got interested in and some, some of my own internal experiences that I would in retrospect would call some awareness of sort of spiritual awarenesses um, and experiences that I had and try to make sense out of all that. I said, you know, I'm, I'm more interested in instead of studying people who are enlightened and actually finding my own. So I didn't think academia was going to hold that for me. So I dropped out of graduate school and just mm -hmm. went on a serious exploration of sort of my inner life and the inner worlds and uh, spiritual and meditation, got a black belt in karate and the martial arts. Uh, I'd been interested in Zen from the time I'd read all of Alan Watts and Suzuki by the time I'd finished high school. So I loved that aesthetic to begin with. And so uh, a friend, another mentor, you know, offered to teach me karate. He was a, a, an expert. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was fascinated by that. So you know, a lot of that then informed my thinking, certainly about focus, because I was, that's you know, such a critical part of it. And a lot of that in retrospect, I wouldn't say that I was that conscious of this path and this track. I was just kind of following my nose and, and, you know, following my intuitive hunches about kind of what to do next. Mm -hmm. And, uh, anyway, so I can keep going with the story. Uh, if you uh, want. <laughs> I, I would, I would love to keep going with it. I want to touch a little bit on the role of mentors. Cause you've mentioned it a couple of times already. And I've also read that you had something like 35 jobs before 35. Do you mind just touching on some of the roles that maybe mentors have played along the way, as well as how they've helped you formulate this amazing system? Yeah. Well, I, I can't say there was any one particular one. I mean, my spiritual mentor that I ran across in 1971, a guy named John Roger, um, sort of has been my spiritual coach in terms of my inner life, you know, for 50 years. Uh, uh, and you know, I, he kind of takes mentor to a whole different level of, of game for that. He was really, really a, a sort of fellow traveler 
just ahead of me, you know, in all of that, but uh, uh, an incredible teacher. Uh, my, I, I mentioned my, uh, the guy in uh, my, my uh, college, my college advisor, who very much mentored me, kind of took me by the hand and, you know, kept me sort of focused on uh, at least getting a degree amidst all the craziness that was going on in the 60s. So I, you know, <laughs> he, he held my hand and sort of kept me from going too far off the rails. Uh, you know, with my motorcycle and other exploratory things I was doing. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and even back before then, my dad died when I was really young. I was nine. My mom didn't really remarry till you know, many, many years later. So she kind of raised me by herself, but I had uh, boy scout uh, uh, troop leaders that were great, you know, that, that were just wonderful guys that, uh, you know, gave me lots of great experiences in terms of camping and the guy stuff. And, um, uh, then in college, uh, George Mayer, he was great. And then I, the, the guy who taught me karate, the martial arts, uh, was a mentor of mine. He was a very, very interesting, creative guy uh, from Philadelphia. Um, and then, whew, then uh, uh, I got involved in the personal growth movement. Uh, mm -hmm. Insight seminars started out in 1978. You know, it, it was sort of a, the genre of est and actualizations of life spring and those kinds of sort of intensive, um, you know, grow yourself, you know, kinds of, of, of seminars and experiential training programs. And I've got very enthralled with those. It, it was it was quite powerful for me to take that seminar. And so I became a, a facilitator for that. And the guy, the co-founder of that, Russell Bishop, was, a, I consider, a mentor of mine who helped sort of turn me on to a lot of the that methodology and the technology, if you will, of personal growth, because uh, he had grown up sort of ahead of, a little bit ahead of me in, in, in terms of all that. So uh, he and I worked closely together for, together for years. And then as I started my own consulting practice after 35 jobs, it's either consultant or flake. Those are the two <laughs> you know, you know, options that you, that you have. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I just needed a job because I was doing the internal exploration and getting a black belt in karate and doing other things like that that wasn't paying much. Not anything really, so I had to had to pay the rent. So uh, and I had just wound up in my network of people I knew. I had friends that were starting their own businesses or had their own small businesses, and so I became a really good number two guy. So I helped a lot of people sort of in their in their business efforts. Uh, helped a guy run a, a, a service station and a car restoration business. Helped a guy manage a landscape company. Had helped two friends start a New Orleans style restaurant in L.A. Uh, yada yada. And see, I would just walk up, come in and go, well, how can we make this easier? Now they call that process improvement. But I was just looking around, isn't there a simpler way to get this done or get that done? Mm -hmm. And then I'd, then I'd help fix it and then I'd get bored. And so I just changed jobs. Then I discovered they pay the people to do that. They call them stuff. They call consultant, right? So mm -hmm. couldn't spell it. Now I are one. So then I hung out my shingle, you know, the Allen Associates in 1981. And then, then I started, got very interested in finding models that I could use. And if it wasn't obvious how to help somebody in their business or in their environment, then I could uh, pull something out of my back pocket and walk people through a model that would improve their, their lives. So I got very hungry for that. And also very hungry for myself to keep my life focused. Because by this point, I'd, I'd sort of tasted the deliciousness of having a clear head. You know, nothing on your mind, clearing your space. And, you know, there was a very practical reason for that in the martial arts. Mm -hmm. A lot of exercises about how do you clear your mind so that when four people attack you from a dark alley, you know, you, you, you engage with that from a clear space, you know, not distracted and not, you know, over underreacting to things. So that was a, so I got, I was interested in that for myself personally. So those two, two things kind of combined together and I wound up finding techniques and back to the mentor, you know, a very, very uh, uh, great long-term life, lifelong friend of mine now still, still is Dean Atchison, who, had his own consulting practice. He'd been, you know, coached, consulting with executives for years, especially in terms of organizational change. And I learned a lot about organizational change processes um, from Dean. So he and I worked shoulder to shoulder together for a couple of years as he sort of saw me and said, hmm, uh, he thought I was probably going to take whatever he had come up with and, and do some other stuff with it more than he was interested in doing. So he kind of handed off to me everything he knew. And, you know, a couple of the techniques that he had uncovered himself to do that kind of work wound up being core elements of the getting things done, the GTD process, 
you know, first of all, getting everything out of your head. He discovered that organizational change was very difficult when people had a lot of old business was still spinning in their psyche and in their environment. So he had come across and, and experimented with the whole idea of just emptying everything out of the out of your head and the whole organization, getting all that out of anybody's head, all the old business, all the open loops, then getting people to make next action decisions about those and having a good communication system just to get cl- get clarity and sort of unhook from the from the, the barnacles that 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 you know, were on the ship of the company simply because of all the old business that was still out there and active very difficult for people to focus on the future when they got, you know, a lot of baggage that they're dragging into it. So, you know, he had uncovered those as merely preliminary, but it turned out that that, that, that process itself solved 90% of the issues. All you had to do was find out what's got people's attention and then ask them, what are they going to do about it? What's the next action? And that in and of itself is just extremely empowering and extremely, you know, uh, kind of makes people sort of recognize their own accountability for, you know, what it is and, you know, kind of, kind of eliminates complaining and worrying uh, if you actually start to implement that model. So that just that piece of it became part of just my own consulting. And that's, I started doing a good bit of one-on-one. We didn't call it coaching back then. It was just consulting, but that became part of what I was doing. And I was using it for myself first. Wow. I was like, this is cool. This, you know, I wasn't broken. Uh, but as soon as Dean walked me through the process himself, I went, oh, my God, that is incredible. The amount of energy that it released and the amount of clarity it produced and the amount of space it created, you know, to really focus, you know, where you wanted to keep your focus. So I started using that for my consulting clients and it produced exactly the same result. No exception. Anybody got everything out of their head, made next action decisions about everything they got out of their head. It automatically gave them more control, more focus, more stability, more balance. You know, all that, all that, those golden goodies in terms of being in a productive state. So that became the big core of it. And then one day, you know, head of human resources at Lockheed actually saw what I was doing. He said, wow, we need that in our whole company. Can you design a training uh, using this methodology that we can reach a lot of people with this as opposed to just one-on-one? So that uh, I did. And it worked. It thrust, I, I found myself thrust into the corporate training world. Mm-hmm. Now, as an American intellectual history major in Berkeley in 1968, if you'd told me I was going to be in the in the corporate training world, I'd have said, "What are you smoking?" God, yeah, you know, I would have. I was going to ask, like, how did what was thought. the journey like there? Who'd have thought? Who'd have thought? That's crazy. And now, it, well, it turned out then, and then, then you know, then then in a you know, kind of the rest is history. But that that was 1983-84, a pilot program for a thousand executives and managers at Lockheed. And then so I just found myself thrust into that world. And it turned out that world was the hungriest for what I had uncovered. And they were willing to pay for it in terms of that. So, you know, it supported me and a couple of partners just in a boutique kind of training and, and consulting, you know, little company uh, that, that we had. And, you know, that, it, it, and that, so I spent then thousands of hours, quite literally with thousands of people, you know, going through versions of this model as I was beginning to craft it and, and hone it and, you know, make it more, more refined based on my experience with it. But, you know, and then a lot of my consulting and coaching sort of turned into working with senior people in these big companies that, mm-hmm. that I was doing, though we still, you know, we're doing a lot of the work. We did it for churches. We did it for startups. We did it for entrepreneurs. You know, this stuff works for anybody. But again, that was just, it was just a good, better job, you know, to be, you know, in that world that was interested in it. And it, back then in the, in the early eighties uh, and, and 90s was when the, the, the kind of the fast track professionals were the first that were starting to get hit with the tsunami of email and, you know, the, the, the plethora of stuff in the digital world. So they were, they were kind of in the most pain and the most interested in you know, getting back to some level of stability and control. And, you know, so there's a, there, there's a lot of history to that. But, you know, then fast forward after all of that. You know, then as I say, it took me 20 years or 25 years to figure out what I figured out and that nobody else had figured that out and that it was bulletproof. Mm-hmm. By that time, I said, okay, I guess I got to write the manual. So that's when I wrote Getting Things Done. I want to pit stop a little bit on that journey and talk about agreements because I find the term fascinating and I find it to be core to, for me, at least why uh, initially GTD started working very well for me. Do you mind talking a little bit about how you came across this term agreements and maybe defining what agreements are for people? Sure. 
I think I first became really conscious of it in the insight seminars and in the personal growth uh, movement back then. There was a lot, it was a fairly common piece of a lot of, of the personal growth trainings about dealing with agreements. And that there was, you know, one of the things you learn is that there's an automatic price you pay for breaking agreements. Automatic price. You know, if I told you, hey, uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to meet at this particular time and I don't show up, you know, that's not a fun thing. What mm-hmm. happens is you're going to disintegrate trust in the relationship. You may still love me, but you won't trust that I'm going to show up when I say I'm going to show up. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's an automatic disintegration of trust if an agreement is broken. That's true with agreements with people, with other people. I mean, there are people I love dearly and I wouldn't trust for them that I could spit to show up when they tell me they're going to show up <laughs> just based on data. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, there's with other people, but it's also true with yourself. So when you tell yourself you would, could, should, need to, ought to do something and you don't, guess what happens? Self-trust goes down. So the, the, it, the, the sense of confidence and personal confidence and personal elan and personal style or charisma automatically gets undone or gets gets suboptimized if you break an agreement with yourself. And mm-hmm. so uh you know if you if you if you don't want to have broken agreements, you know, you have three options. One is don't make the agreement to begin with. Right? Uh, excuse me, I'm not gonna do that podcast with you, Boomer. Right? Sorry, <laughs> I've got too many podcasts. I'm not gonna do it. Zero. Uh complete the agreement. Let's finish this. Do this thing. Check it off. Hey, done. Or if I decide I can't show up when I agreed to show up, I'm going to contact you and say, hey, Boomer, you know, something showed up. I got a bad cough. You know, let's reschedule or whatever. Renegotiated agreements are not broken agreements. Now, that's one small, tiny little fingernail piece of what the whole sort of personal growth movement had as a technology and a methodology about managing yourself, managing relationships and, you know, creating a better life for yourself is understanding that. And, uh, but it turns out that, that as I started doing this work, that all of these things that were on people's minds are agreements they have with themselves, that they, you know, the fact that, that they have attention on it means that some part of them is saying, I would, this needs to be different, or I want this to be different, or I have to do something about this or whatever. And so a lot of what GTD became was just the, 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 the cataloging of what are all your agreements with yourself. A lot of them include other people you know, for sure. And those need to be captured. Oh yeah. I told my boss asked me to do this and I've got these three things I need to do for my wife or my husband. And I, yeah, yeah. So you have all of those things, but you also have all those, Oh yeah, I really need to look into a new mobile phone service or, you know, should we get a consultant about the uh, investments and, in, you know, in sustainable businesses uh, or, you know, I got this tooth I got to fix, you know, or should we get divorced or, you know, any and all of those things, they can get pretty subtle. Some of them are pretty obvious and basic. You, you know, the light bulb burnt out. We need a new light up there. You know, mm-hmm. So those are all agreements with yourself. So a lot of this is about getting the cataloging all those agreements with yourself so that you could either decide not to do them, move that to someday maybe, or take it off your list because you got too much stuff to do, or uh, complete the agreement or finish the thing you know, keep track of the loop that you've opened and then close the loop, you know, or renegotiate it, which is basically what you and I have done in order to be present in this conversation is not too long ago, as you probably know, you and I probably had to look at all the other things we might need to be doing today and say, no, this is it. Mm -hmm. How many things are we not doing today? You know, it's funny. We, you know, we just had the global GTD summit uh, here in Amsterdam and about 700 people, you know, came was really, really great. And, uh, you know, my, my MC, Ben Hammersley, fabulous guy, smart guy. And he, uh, you know, he asked me, David, how many projects do people usually have? I said somewhere between 30 and a hundred are usually the number of projects, things that take more than one step you can finish within the next year. And, uh, I said, you know, could probably average 50 or whatever. So he just multiplied it out. So he walked out on stage and said, by the way, right now there are 35,000 projects not getting done because you guys are sitting <laughs> in this audience. That was funny. You know? So, yes. So that the renegotiation of agreements, mm-hmm. and so you, you know, I didn't really plan it that way. It just turned out that you know, uh, this by doing this work, that's why a lot of that stuff. You know, in retrospect, I can say that's why this makes such a difference. 
just people making a list, just, just getting stuff out of your head. You suddenly go, wow, I feel different. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, is because your head's a crappy office, first of all, but not designed for that. And all those things, you know, keeping stuff in your head is, is, is your, where you keep it in your head has no sense of past or future. So if you need cat food or you need to hire a VP of marketing or whatever, and that's still just in your head, you can wake up at three o'clock in the morning thinking cat food or VP of marketing or whatever is spinning around in there because that part of you thinks you should be doing all of that all the time, mm-hmm. just psychologically. No wonder people get so stressed and stressed out. <laughs> so the whole idea, the reason people feel better when they write stuff down is they look at it and go, no, I can't do that. And they, they just renegotiated those agreements with themselves. Mm-hmm. David, can we go into that head is a crappy office point? Because one of the new additions, or at least new aspects of the of the new edition of GTD, the book that is, is the element of sort of cognitive science behind why the head is a crappy office. Yeah. Can you go just a little bit deeper as to why people should be, maybe people haven't heard of the system yet, but why people should be really in tune and listening right now? Well, again, I'm not a cognitive scientist. You know, I'm just a sort of end user of, 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 of a lot of what they came up with. But I do now know them, and have, in the last 10 or 15 years, there's been quite a bit of research done. Uh, I think they, the initial concept was called distributed cognition. Mm-hmm. You know, and I said, do you mean write it down? They said, yeah, there's another way to say it. You know, it's like get, get stuff out of your head. And, you know, recent studies, and there are, you know, three or four really good books that have been, you know, published recently, you know, about all, all the studies that have been done about this. Basically, your brain did not evolve to remember, remind, prioritize, or manage relationships between more than four things. Your brain evolved to do some very cool stuff, which is anybody seeing or listening to this right now is already happening. Long-term history, pattern recognition. That's why you understand language. That's why you think that's a chair, not just vibrations of light and sound. You know, so it, it, we do brilliant stuff. It, you know, we evolved to stay alive in the very present, to notice there's a tiger, there's berries, there's a thunderstorm, the baby's crying. So we do that extremely well. Computers can't even come close to that yet, even mm-hmm. though they're trying. Um, and yet you go to the store for lemons, you come back with six things and no lemons. You know, what happened? Well, you tried to use your office, your head is your office, and it just doesn't work for that. So you actually now, and then there have been studies that show if you, if you try to keep track of about more than about four things and then try to take tests or try to remember anything or try to do anything, you're not going to do nearly as well as somebody who's got them all out of their head. And so, you know, again, I don't know how long I'm going to be preaching this. It seems to be pretty obvious, you know. I, I learned this 35 years ago and Dean, my mentor, taught me that and, and had me doing that. So, you know, I've had pretty much an empty head for 35 years. Uh, maybe that's evident already, but anybody listening to this, you know, not much going on up here, except, <laughs> except, except this. That's the whole point, you know, as, as sort of being present. So a lot of what getting things done, you know, has turned out being is, not so much about getting things done or certainly not working harder or sweating more. It's really about being appropriately engaged with your world so that you, you're present with whatever you're doing. Uh, but you can't do that if you're distracted by stuff banging around in your head and you haven't unloaded it and parked reminders that you need to see about that in some place you trust. You've already touched on so many elements of the system. And I think people are are probably anxious listening to this to hear more about it. But for someone who is not familiar with GTD listening to this, can we go into just the different elements of GTD, sort of the capture, clarify, organize, reflect, and engage? All right. So you guys are probably wondering, what are the brands of blue light blockers that I recommend? Well, one of them is the sponsor for today's podcast. And they are blue blocks. I've had the CEO, Andy Mant, on the show before where we got into a really deep dive on blue light. And you know that if you get any amount of blue light in your glasses, no matter if it's 3%, 10%, whatever, it does disrupt melatonin production. And so Andy has created blue light blockers that hold up to the highest standards. And in fact, and I'll link to it in the show notes, you can see when he's tested it versus other brands that they always come out on top. 
so quality is a thing I appreciate and is what exactly I recommend for all of our clients. But if you head over to blueblocks.com, that's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com and plug in the code DS15, you're going to get 15% off. And now on with the show. Sure. Well, there's really a kind of a matrix here that you need to, first of all, be in control and you need to have appropriate focus. Mm-hmm. So getting control, that means during the, any 24 hours, how many things you have to deal with. My cat, my new puppy, the, the v- VP, the 1,400 emails I just got, the mail that just showed up, and, you know, mm-hmm. staying in control of that. Mm-hmm. There are five steps that we do to take any situation and to get it under control and more focused and more balanced. Uh, first of all, you need to capture the stuff that's got your attention. There's a lot of stuff going on around your world that doesn't have your attention because it's on cruise control. Right? There's nothing you need to think or do about it because it is where it is, the way it is, and that's fine. You know, it, it's working. It's the things that have your attention. So that's the first step is to identify those things that have your attention that are off or not on cruise control yet. Or, and that's not bad or good. It's just, hey, hey, hey the, the light bulb needs changing or, hey, here's an opportunity that I didn't know I had before, whatever it is. So that's capture it. And then you need to, then once you've captured it, and again, capture looks like don't just have it in your mind because that's a terrible place to capture stuff. But we're talking about capture, getting it externalized, write it down, record it, you know, do something, get it out of your head and, you know, put some trigger of a reminder about what this thing is in some bucket that you trust you'll get to sooner than later. That's step one. Then you don't leave it in the bucket. You don't leave it in your end basket. You don't leave it in the notes that you wrote down. You didn't need to then clarify what those things mean and what you're going to do about them, if anything. Step two is clarify. Clarify means, is it something to move on or not? If not, is it something to trash, something you want to save as reference, or something you just want to stage for a later reminder about it? If it is something to move on, what does moving look like? What's the very next action you need to take on it? Is that a phone call to make, an email to send? Is it something you're waiting on to come back from somebody else? Is it a website you need to surf? What's next on this thing that you wrote down? And if one action won't finish it, what's the final outcome that you need to keep track of? What's the project? So that's a very simple algorithm, if you will, or formula about how do you clarify an email, a note you take in the meeting, uh, uh, anything, any kind of input that you have, ideas you have, anything that's got your attention at all for any reason. Uh, you need to capture it and clarify it. And then if you can't finish whatever you just came up with uh, in the moment or with at least within two minutes, then you need to organize some reminder about that. So I need to put my reference material where reference goes. I need to put trash where trash goes. I need to put projects that I come up with, like give mom a birthday party. That I need to put that on a project list. I need to call my sister next about that to see what she wants to thinks we should do about for mom. That goes on a list of calls I need to make. So I then need to organize the, the, the results of my cognitive you know, thinking, essentially, about what this stuff means. That's step three is organize. And then step four is to make sure I'm looking at this external brain and the appropriate parts of it so that I look at my calendar when I need to see where I need to be this afternoon. I look at a list of errands I need to run when I go out to run errands. I look at a list of stuff I need to talk to my wife about on my list for at Catherine. So then you need to reflect, essentially. Step four is to reflect on the contents of, you know, whatever it is that we have, that we've captured and, and clarified and organized. For you, then, Dave, David, is that a daily or weekly exercise? Or, or it's whenever I need to. I mean, when do you need to look at your calendar? All the time. Well, well not all the time. I'm not yeah. looking at it right now. That's true. You need to look at it when you need to look at it. Mm-hmm. sometimes I only need to look at it the night before to see how long I can sleep. And then I don't need to look at it again because I'm only doing one thing. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, pretty evident. But again, if I have one of those days where I'm traveling to two different cities and I'm in three different meetings and, you know, doing a keynote speech at the same, on the same day, believe me, I'm looking at the calendar, you know, as soon as I stop doing what I'm doing, look at, <laughs> looking at it to see where I need to go next. Mm-hmm. So, so it all depends. And, you know, that's kind of a driving criterion about all of this is what do you need to do to get this off your mind, right? And anybody listening or watching this who keeps a calendar is already doing this behavior. Why are you keep a calendar? Why don't you keep it all in your head? Because uh, I can't screw up missing an appointment. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> that's why you work a calendar is because the, the, the price of not doing it is too steep. 
But most people don't realize, well, why don't you do that with the rest of your life? Because I see all the lists that I manage. I've got about 10 or 12 or, you know, lists of, this, of things, reminders that I've just sorted to make it easier for me to see what I need to see when I need to see it. They go, God, you got so many lists. I say, well, if you don't like lists, throw away your calendar. Don't be intellectually dishonest. Either your head's the place to hold these reminders or it's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't intellectually justify halfway in between. And that's the problem. Most people are using their head as their office. Even if they have a funky to-do list, they still you know, have barely even touched how much stuff they've actually got banging around in there. Mm-hmm. And so how long, just on the capture and clarify element of things, how long do you recommend somebody blocking out for this? Because I know for me, uh, the times in life where I've either had to go through that process again and just sort of refamiliarize myself, it can take quite a while, as in a day, maybe even more. How long do you recommend people <clears throat> side? Well, if you're talking about making sure that your system, your external brain is appropriately currently populated with all, all the appropriate stuff, that usually takes people, when we coach them in a one-on-one, it usually takes people a couple of days just to do that. Because they also need to make sure they set up a system of lists and a, a place, you know, to hold all of that. Uh, but that's, you know, you don't need to do that uh, once you've got your system set up. That's mm-hmm. why, of course, as you probably know, one of the key elements of keeping this system up and alive is the weekly review. Once a week, you need to take an hour or two and bring up the rear guard and make sure you're, that, you're, that you've marked off stuff that you've already finished, that any new stuff that's shown up, that you've captured that, and to make sure that you've got next actions on all your projects, et cetera. And you're looking at your calendar, seeing what's coming towards you and you're handling all the, Oh, that reminds me, you know, that any of that stuff happens. That's a once a week event that can take anywhere from half an hour to a couple of hours, depends on how complex and fast your life has been moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and also how complete your system is to begin with. Um, so you know, it's constantly changing. So there are always things that you don't know, need to add or do to do to that. If you're talking about on a regular basis, it takes about most people, depending upon the, your email volume, but most people, it takes somewhere between 30 and 90 minutes a day just to stay current with new incoming. You know, that's how long it t- takes me usually to, take, to, to make sure my, I zero out my backlog in terms of email and mail, physical mail and stuff and notes and things like that. Because mm-hmm. that's, just, that's just the nature of it. Uh, you know, these things don't show up self-defined. Junk mail does not tell you it's junk mail. (laughs) And there's more of that these days. The email does not tell you what you need to do and if you have a project now based upon it. Mm -hmm. So you you still have to do that. You know, it's funny. People get mad at me about their list. And I go, it ain't my list. You know, that's yours. You know, all I'm doing is walking you through the process. You're going to have to do it anyway. This is not extra work. You're going to have to make these decisions about whether that's junk mail or not at some point right? Mm-hmm. This is not extra work. It's just stuff on the, why are you letting that junk mail pile up on the flat surface and the, the first flat surface inside your door, you know, or on the kitchen counter or on the half of the dining room table where that stuff has been piling up, you know, why is it there? You know, why did you make that decision right to begin with? So there is time it takes to just make sure you, your world is current based upon capturing, clarifying and, and organizing. But if you're saying, you know, you mentioned you probably have fallen off the wagon and then to get back on the wagon, Mm -hmm. that just takes however long it takes to empty your head again and make next action decisions about it and update your list and update your system, however long that takes. Can we talk about the elements of a good next action? Because I think for a lot of people here, next actions sometimes look like, hey, I'm going to read War and Peace or something like that. Do you mind going into just what constitutes the best next action? Well, a next action, when we talk about next actions, it needs to be the result of having finished your thinking about stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, come on, I know this is going to be kind of a duh, but the way you get things done is, first of all, you, what does done mean? And then second, what does doing look like and where does it happen? And outcome and action thinking don't show up by themselves. You actually have to train yourself to do that. It's a cognitive muscle, as I say, Basically, you have to train to think about that. And it's really, it really takes some training to getting used to, uh, you know, what's the, what's the very next action on anything that has your attention? Set meeting is not a next action because you can't see where that happens. You know, 
email to set the meeting. Ah, now you've got a next action. Or call to set the meeting. Now you've got a big next action. Or I need to just walk up and talk to them to set the meeting. Those are next actions because you can see them physical, visible activity. There's where, where it happens and what the activity actually is. And I know that sounds kind of simplistic, but if you haven't made that decision yet, you haven't finished your thinking. Some part of you is going to still, this little part of you is still going to spin in there called, do I, how do I set the meeting? Should I send them an email? Should I call them? Should I talk to them? So you need to finish the thinking about it. You can change your mind, but at least make a decision about what would look, what would be next about this. Anybody listening to this, if you, if you've got anything like a to-do list anywhere, if you would pull that out and take a look at any real thing on there, very seldom will you see the next action about that thing on that list. Sometimes you do. If it's just a call to make and that's, you don't have to do anything except you know, pick up your phone and punch numbers, you know, then, you're, then that is the next action. But for the most part, you'll see things like mom or bank or tooth or you know, investment portfolio or VP of marketing. You, you'll see stuff that's great. They've captured stuff. But if I said, if you had nothing, why is mom on the list? You had one, good historical data, but why did you write it down? Oh, her birthday's coming. Great. What are you going to do about mom's birthday? And so what happens is, unfortunately, because most people's lists are still incomplete and they're unclear, they haven't determined what the next step on those things is, it's, it's automatically kind of yelling or whispering at them. There's decisions and thinking about this you haven't done yet. And you're, when you look at them, you usually don't have the energy to think and decide about stuff. So you say, stop reminding me, I'm overwhelmed. And most people's existential experience with their own planners and their own list and their own systems is fatigue, simply because they're being reminded that there's, they haven't finished their thinking about the tooth, about the investment, about the VP of marketing, about that. Finish your thinking. What's the outcome you're committed to complete about that? And by the way, if you had nothing else to do but hire a VP of marketing right now, it'll pay you a million bucks to start. What's the first thing I would see you do? Surf the web, call somebody and ask them their recommendation, uh, review a resume. What, 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 what's, what's next? And you don't even actually need to think oftentimes past the next action. Sometimes you'll over plan if you do, because the next action will then determine what the next action might be. Mm-hmm. So it's like, if you like playing football, you know, you know, you and I are in a, in a football country, right? Mm-hmm. Soccer to those of you in the U S right. If you, what do you, what do you think the two things on any soccer player, football player's mind are once they're on the field of the game has started? Where's the goal? What's the next play? Right? Where's the goal? What's the next play? They certainly have strategy and whatever, but the next play is going to determine what the next play is. Trust me. Mm-hmm. Just go play some soccer and you'll see what I mean. Right? So those two things, and most people need to train themselves to actually do that about the rest of their life. What's the, where's the goal? Mom and birthday, bank, instant, you know, extend credit line, tooth, get your tooth fixed, you know, whatever it is. What's the goal? And what's the next act? What's the next play? Is that call the dentist? Is that, you know, God knows, you know, yada, yada. So that's the, the, the discrete thing. And you could have fooled me how rare it is to find people who actually think at the next action level. Mm-hmm. I have spent thousands of hours with some of the best and brightest and busiest people you'll ever meet on the planet, walking them through this process. What is that? You know, it takes, first of all, one to six hours for them to capture all the stuff that's got their attention. Then it takes the rest of a day or two for them to go through each one of those and make the next action decision about what are they going to do about it? Could have fooled me. By that time, they've sort of trained a cognitive muscle, so it's a lot easier for them to do. Again, it's, sometimes it's some of the smartest people that are avoiding making these decisions about what the next step is. Uh, you know, cause they're one of the greatest sources of procrastination is thinking of how many things you need to think about and you don't have the energy to do all the thinking you think you need to think about something. And so you don't. So it hangs up as opposed to come on, just how would you kickstart this? What's the very next thing that would move this forward? Oh God. Yeah. I guess I need to get an answer. You can actually train yourself to do that. You're not born doing it. It is, it, it is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a technique that really is uh, emerged as a necessity with knowledge work where you actually have to think to figure out what to do as mm-hmm. opposed to doing is evident. So pre-knowledge work, you make most people just made and move things. So mm-hmm. you know, unmade, unmoved things tell you what to do, right? But no email tells you what to do, right? No conversation with your boss then tells you what to do. You actually have to walk out and then figure that out. You know, the late, great Peter Drucker would tell everybody that your, 
you know, toughest work of knowledge work is to figure out what the heck your work is. Mm-hmm. He didn't tell you how to do that. Getting things done does. You know, that's the, that, that's the, that's what we figured out was how do I determine what the work is that needs to happen? But that if you're not doing, if you haven't got an outcome or an action step, you haven't defined your work yet. How many meetings don't have defined outcomes? How many conversations in meetings don't have a next action decision about who's going to do what about it? So we've seen whole cultures, whole teams, whole cultures change with just those two. What are we trying to accomplish and what's the next action being embedded in the lexicon of the culture? It's incredible. All right. So it's not often you get to interview someone who has had such a big influence on your life. And the work of David Allen has made a significant contribution to how I handle my workflow. It's made a significant contribution to how millions have handled their workflow. And I'm really grateful for David for taking the time today to walk through some of his background, some of his history, and you can begin to see and formulate how it all came together in what is now known as GTD. The show notes for this one, again, are at decodingsuperhuman.com slash GTD. And we're going to continue this conversation next week where we get more into the tactical elements of GTD and the practical takeaways for you. If you enjoyed this episode, would you mind sharing it with a friend? Actually, share it with a bunch. And if you really enjoyed the episode, head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating with a comment. It would be really appreciated, and I appreciate all of you. Have an absolutely epic day, superhumans.